DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program. Now obviously this issue has become deeply problematic for the government because it has made protecting children and uh, traditional family values the cornerstone of its policies and the president uh, president uh, Katalin Novak herself was also a former family affairs minister. Hungary resignations, the pedophile scandal that toppled a president. Green giggles, ecologically conscious comedy, French style. And memorial politics, what to do about Bulgaria's communist era monuments. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. A kedelmezés jogkör mindközül talán a legérzékenyebb mert egy ember életéről kell dönteni. A kegyelmi kérvény és a That is the sound of a president resigning. Katalin Novak, Hungary's first female president, stepped down last Saturday, admitting that she had made a mistake when she granted a presidential pardon to the deputy director of a state orphanage who had been convicted for his part in covering up the sexual abuse of children at the institution. Since then, Hungary's president, Viktor Orbán, has lost another key political ally to the scandal, his justice minister, Judith Varga, in what is widely viewed as his biggest challenge in 14 years of uninterrupted rule by his Fidesz party. With Orbán's annual State of the Nation address looming, I spoke to our Budapest correspondent, Stefan Boss, about the scandal and its wider political ramifications. Well, what we do know at this point is that uh, Hungary's first uh, female and actually youngest ever president, Katalin Novak, stepped down and also a former justice minister uh, resigned because uh, what they did was they granted the presidential pardon, among others, uh, to this man. Uh, he has been identified as Andre K. Uh, he was convicted and jailed for being an accomplice in pedophile crimes. He was jailed for persuading children to withdraw their testimony against the uh, director of the orphanage for sexual abuse. And he was also one of uh, about 25 people who were pardoned by the president during a visit by Pope Francis last year. But uh, interesting enough, his name only became public knowledge uh, this month. Now, obviously, this issue has become deeply problematic for the government because it has made protecting children and uh, traditional family values the cornerstone of its policies. And the president, uh, President uh, Katalin Novak herself, was also a former family affairs minister. Well, indeed. Stefan, I, I remember you profiling her, in fact, in the context of our Women of Europe special. Yes, indeed. Uh, I profiled her and uh, she said uh, in that uh, interview, actually, which we were broadcasting, that uh, she finds it very important for uh, women uh, to have more children and also to take uh, families more seriously. And she made a case for uh, traditional families. I'm a mother of three children, so I'm not only a woman president, but also a mom. And I think these two can go hand in hand with each other, even if it's not easy. Right. Okay. So we can see why the Hungarian 
president, uh, President Novak, had to resign because this is a scandal which is, of course, very much off-brand. She, however, is not the only political casualty in this scandal, Stefan, I believe. No, indeed, because it's uh, quite interesting that uh, there is another uh, powerful woman. Her name is Judith Varka. Uh, She was uh, Minister of Justice at the time of the pardon and countersigned uh, the clemency decision. So she had hoped to lead the ruling Fidesz party in the upcoming European elections. But of course, when this scandal came out, uh, she was basically forced to rethink that and she has now resigned from parliament and will no longer be leading the ruling Fidesz party for the upcoming European elections. So it goes really very deep in the uh, Fidesz party and people are very concerned uh, about what will happen next. What kind of differences were there between these two women? Were they similar kinds of politician? I would say that while President Novak tried to unite the nation behind Orbán's policy in her more, I would say, soft-spoken style, uh, Varka echoed the Prime Minister's combative style when, for instance, confronting the European Union over its decision to freeze billions in funding to Hungary over rule of law concerns. Rule of law is there to put constraints, to put limits uh, to political will. But recently in the European Union, rule of law became a realizing tool for frustrated political will. Viktor Orbán's Fidesz party has been in power for 14 years, Stefan. Is it fair to say that this, although not yet an existential crisis, in fact, far from it in, in, in terms of Orbán, but, but it is the biggest crisis that he has faced so far in those 14 years? Absolutely. This is by far the biggest crisis for Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He has been in power uh, continuously since uh, 2010. And obviously, uh, critics say he has become increasingly authoritarian in the sense that uh, he controls a lot of media. uh, And also uh, there has been talks about uh, corruption and uh, so on. And um, critics say that he basically was believing that he could get away with anything. Now, obviously, one of the reasons why many Hungarians voted for him was that they uh, quite honestly share his uh, conservative views uh, about families. But of course, what is very controversial is that he has quite uh, made a case against uh, what he views as uh, the uh, LGBTQ uh, community's growing influence over schools. Uh, And he said it's very dangerous and we have to protect children. But now people say, well, you had a very big mouse about this uh, community, which, uh, you know, are most of all law abiding citizens but now your people uh, and not just anyone but even the president are basically giving a pardon to someone who has been accused of uh, sexual abuse against children so it's a very big scandal and obviously he's already preparing for his uh, state of the nation address uh, a little bit you can compare it with the state of the union address in the united states he does it every year it has become a tradition and that's coming up this weekend isn't it stefan yes it's this weekend uh, and uh, of course there will be also protests there have been also protests already before 
thousands of people demanding the resignation uh, of the president. But of course, now they are saying we also want that there are more changes made in the government, preferably that the government resigns. But if not, at least uh, do something about uh, the corruption, because that's another issue people are very worried about. Finally, Stefan, in 14 years of Fidesz rule, we've never seen anything quite like this. Can you just quickly perhaps end for me by gaming out the possible implications from here on? I think the implications will be that uh, Orban will be uh, very much damaged by this scandal and will face growing opposition. I have to say also that he is a very seasoned Uh, politician and he knows how to play this game very well so I wouldn't count on it that he immediately resigns but uh, it is definitely uh, a major major crisis ahead of the uh, European uh, elections uh, here and the rest of Europe. Interesting times. Stefan Voss in Budapest thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. Our Budapest correspondent Stefan Voss there. Now, for something completely different, green comedy. Never heard of it? Well, never fear, France's Greenwashing Comedy Club are here to set you right. This group of 50 ecologically-minded stand-up comedians are touring their material around France with jokes sourced from the world of carbon footprints, wind turbines and climate change. I wonder if they recycle their material. John Lawrenson reports from Paris. Nicolas sidles onto the stage. What does he look like? Well, that's his first line, actually. As if he shops at the organic supermarket chain Biocop, which he almost definitely does, of course. (laughs) Do we have any flexitarians here tonight, he asks. We do. He is one. What is a flexitarian? Like a vegetarian, but without the willpower. He doesn't eat meat, he explains, except in really exceptional circumstances, like when he feels like it. (laughs) (laughs) Raffaella is one of the comics tonight and an unofficial spokesperson of the Greenwashing Comedy Club. So I'm Raffaella. I've started uh, stand-up comedy about a year and a half ago. Um, and the first um, skit I wrote was about my life as a Parisian girl uh, into ecology and uh, a bit hipster maybe, because I am. <laughs> and um, here we are, we are playing like but like 10 times a month um, in several places, mostly in Paris and in Paris area, but also a bit outside. Tomorrow I'm in Bordeaux, in the southwest of France. Mm-hmm. Um, in a few weeks I'll be in Amiens, in the north of France. So, yeah, we're playing a bit all around. What is the idea of the uh, Greenwashing Comedy Club? So the idea, first it was founded uh, at a time where there was not so much talks about climate and around ecology on stand-up stages and the idea was to create a stage on which you, on which you can talk about these topics. When we're talking about climate, our goal is quite is twofold. The first one is to um, yeah, to plant seed on in the in the mind of people who are not necessarily like into these topics. Um, and that's very true when we're playing in places that are not climate labeled. Uh, and when we're playing in places that are climate label as tonight, probably like 100% of the room was already convinced when they enter the room, it's more to laugh about stuff that aren't funny and you don't laugh about eco-anxiety. So 
just a place to release tension. Some of the material is a little bit edgy, like Nicolas' tuna-phobia joke, trying to get to the bottom of the moral or otherwise choices behind his flexitarianism. He finds that he has no qualms about eating tuna, because a tuna looks like a football with glassy eyes. In fact, he wouldn't even mind kicking it about a bit. And then he says, in a few years' time, once we all think anti-speciesism is a bad thing, we'll be ashamed at laughing at that joke. It'll be like jokes about gay people. Fine a few years ago, not so now. At tonight's show, as it happens, there are quite a few jokes about gayness, but by comedians who are gay. That's a bit of an unofficial rule. You can joke about one, ecologist, lesbian, Muslim, fat person, whatever, but only if you are one. There are also some actual rules, no heckling or even verbal interaction with the comedians, for example, as the MC explains before the start. When the comedian asks the audience a question, instead of saying yes, you reply by applauding. More generally, comedians here are expected to be bienveillant, like well-meaning, i.e. have the right basic political opinions. A greenwashing comedy club gig is pretty much explicitly a safe space, which, Raffaella admits, does have its downside. Yeah, I mean, sometimes here it's a bit too easy, I would say. Like, sometimes you're like, climate and product, ha, 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 and they're, they're not laughing because you're funny, they're laughing because they agree with you. <laughs> so, so it's good to also go outside and not to be here all the time, but it's also a good test to see if you're funny or not. If you're making a good joke, people will laugh. Maybe not as much as here because maybe they don't fully agree. Maybe sometimes there will be like some, like, I won't say resentful, but maybe sometimes there will be a bit of tension. But yeah, eventually a good joke is a good joke. After the show, I talked to a couple of people who'd been in the audience who were surprisingly aware of what it is they liked about this humour. I really loved it. It was very funny. And uh, what I loved is that uh, every people insisted on the contradiction they have. So uh, actually they laugh about themselves and that's what I like. Because if you uh, talk about ecology and you accuse uh, other person, then it's not really funny. Uh, because it's just accusation and uh, today uh, there were a lot of people with uh, like humans uh, talking about their contradictions as human beings so I, uh, that's what I love the fact that it's uh, a safe space and, uh, and like people some sort of have uh, similar views on uh, environment stuff uh, you can go quite far uh, into jokes and uh, I thought it was like very creative so you can go deeper into the subject because people know the subject pretty well yeah, there was uh, this uh, low-carbon BDSM or, uh, you know, there was a pig uh, going to a Montessori school. Yeah. <laughs> this kind of stuff. <laughs> I thought it was really good. Like, okay, some, so some very uh, unexpected jokes. Though lots, of course, about the daily wrestle with green questions like Raffaella's sketch about going on holiday with friends who aren't so green, asking her whether it's okay to throw out used coffee grounds from the coffee machine because when we threw the eggshells away, you cried. John Lawrence DW, Paris. <laughs> I suspect there is a fine line between green humour and gallows humour, but we here at Inside Europe are here for it. Do drop us a line at insideeurope at dw.com if you think you have a contribution to make to this genre. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. 
happen Deny it ever will Deny it ever happen But it keeps on happening still The politics of memory is a tricky business in Bulgaria, a Balkans nation torn between pro-Russian and pro-Western allegiances. It's in this context that the ongoing debate about what to do with Bulgaria's communist-era monuments is being carried out. Should the monuments be removed as glorifications of a repressive regime? Or should they remain as a reminder of an important part of Bulgaria's history and heritage? Opinion is divided, as Damien Vodinicharov reports from Sofia. The monument of the Soviet army. It is one of the most significant of its kind and it completely dominates the downtown park it is sitting in. A large central column, over 40 meters tall, looms over the 2,000 square meter park. At the top, a Soviet soldier brandishing a machine gun leads a Bulgarian family to freedom. The Bolshevik revolution and scenes of the Great Patriotic War, Russia's name for the Eastern Front of World War II, are also represented along the flanks of the large, temple-like structure. People started using the monument as a skate park after the fall of communism. The monument itself and the statues were often defaced in various ways. Figures were even once repainted as superheroes and supervillains such as Superman, Batman's nemesis, the Choker, and even Ronald McDonald. After the annexation of Crimea, they were painted in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. Parts of the monument were carved out or tagged with spray paint or covered with posters accusing Vladimir Putin of being a murderer. The monument itself was erected after the 1944 coup that led Bulgarian communists to overthrow the Tsar. The Red Army had just crossed the Danube into Bulgaria, which was an ally of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. The communist regime viewed the coup as a liberation that drew it ever closer to the Soviet Union. Bulgaria and the Soviet Union signed a friendship accord to promote cooperation and mutual aid. Historical ties between the two countries are centuries old. Our love for our great and powerful liberator and protector is deeply rooted within our souls. The friendship between the Bulgarian and Soviet peoples is eternal and unbreakable. Not only are we brothers united by blood, but also allies. The people should rejoice. In the years following the fall of communism, some monuments were destroyed, such as the mausoleum with the body of the regime's first leader. Others were removed, such as the giant red star crowning what is today the parliament. There was talk of also removing the Soviet army monuments, but the idea was quickly dismissed. Fast forward to December 2023, when the uppermost sculptures are being cut up in pieces and removed by crane. Cheers can be heard from the small gathered crowd congratulating the workers. This moment was a long time coming. One of Sofia's district mayors, Traicho Traikov, was the driving force behind it back in 2022. This monument has a 
I most certainly do not want this monument to be destroyed. It has an artistic, aesthetic and historical value. It bears witness to the times. But being displayed as it is right now in downtown Sofia, it still has the same effect that the Communist Party intended. It influences people psychologically, ideologically and politically. Trakov's argument is that the monument should be preserved but moved away from its original spot. I have always maintained that the monument should be separated. The sculptures and other elements can be moved away to a place where they can then be visited. People should be able to appreciate the art, to teach their children the history of our country, but not as it currently stands. This presence in downtown Sofia is presumptuous. It only stands for the dominance of a foreign country over a puppet state. Public opinion is split right down the middle, not only over communist monuments, but also over ties to Russia and Bulgaria's role in the Ukraine war. To pro-Russian parties, such as the nationalists from Renaissance, removing the Soviet army monument borders on heresy, as people were gathering to protest, chants got very political, very fast. sympathizers were chanting NATO out, Renaissance President Kostadin Kostadinov, one of the main pro-Russian voices in parliament, didn't mince his words. The current hateful government is being controlled by a fascist regime. Their goal is clear and simple. They want to wipe out all Bulgarians. They are trying to wipe Bulgaria off the map, to turn it into Ukraine. Removing the Soviet army monument in such a barbaric way says it all. They're chopping it up in pieces. A fascist regime. The accusation is as loaded with history as the monument itself. Communists and partisan fighters before them were all fighting against what they say was the fascist regime of the Bulgarian Tsar, which was also Vladimir Putin's justification for invading Ukraine. Denazification. Damien Vodinicharov reporting from Sofia there. Now, the historical theme continues. Last week, we asked you to guess who said Europe was created by history, America was created by philosophy. Lots of you thought that it was either US President Abraham Lincoln or French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, but only the most astute of our listeners realised that the quotation was in fact from former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. This week, we're inviting you to guess the origins of the metaphor of an iron curtain to denote political division. Does it come from the 17th century British Civil War? the 18th century French guillotine or 19th century fire safety curtains. Head over to Spotify and click on this week's episode of the show if you want to take part. Inside Europe is, of course, also available on all the other usual platforms, including YouTube via the DW Podcasts channel. This is Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany.
You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We have something a little bit different coming up for you this half hour. Our colleagues over at DW's Don't Drink the Milk podcast have been taking a deep dive into the world of homeopathy, a pseudoscientific system of alternative medicine, which here in Germany is a very big deal indeed. Here's Rachel Stewart. I had a very bad car accident in my early 20s and I was suffering from a post-traumatic uh, thing, but it, I did not know that then. I had some palpitations, feelings that my heart was beating too fast and I was really stressed about it because I became unconscious because of the panic that I felt. So I went from doctor to doctor. That's Dr. Natalie Grams. She's from Germany. At the point in her life she's describing, she was actually studying to become a doctor. But after she had this traumatic accident, none of the medical professionals she saw were able to help her with what she was experiencing. Then, a friend recommended she talk to a homeopath. She gave me a lot of time and she told me to take those homeopathic remedies. I could take them whenever I felt worse. And I got uh, better in a very short time. Natalie was so convinced by her experience that she decided to train to become a homeopath herself. She wanted to help other people who'd been let down by conventional medicine and needed an alternative. I really believed in homeopathy to be the somehow better medicine, so I used it for all kinds of diseases and illnesses. And I really was convinced that it might help against everything. Welcome to the Don't Drink the Milk Laboratory. My name is Dr. Rachel Stewart. No, she's not a medical doctor. Shh. I'm starting off with one drop of this onion extract. I'll put that into this test tube here. And next, I'll use this pipette or dropper to add 100 drops of water. Now I'm going to shake it vigorously and bang it against this leather-bound book. Stage one complete. Now I take one drop of this solution and add it to another test tube. Again, I add 100 drops of water. And shake and bang. Time for round three. One drop in another test tube. Round 21. Drops but one drop in another test tube. Round 67. And we shake Round 82. 100 drops of water. And bang it. Once I've done this a hundred times, I take some tiny white balls made of sugar and spray the final solution onto them. Then I let them dry. And voila! My homeopathic remedy is ready. So, you've probably heard of homeopathy. You might have tried it before. Maybe you've even got some homeopathic remedies in your medicine cabinet right now. But do you really know exactly what it is? Homeopathy is often bundled in with things like acupuncture, Chinese medicine or naturopathy. But it's actually one very specific branch of alternative medicine, usually administered in the form of a liquid solution made with water or alcohol, or tiny white pills called globuli. You just heard me making a mock version of one of those remedies, and I was seriously watering down my onion extract. 
That's because a key part of homeopathic theory is a process known as potentization. According to homeopaths, the more a substance is diluted, the more potent it will be. All remedies go through a process of extreme dilution, shaking and bashing. The theory is that water has a kind of memory, and the pattern of the original healing ingredient is imprinted on the water. That first test tube mixture I made had a concentration of 1 to 100. Then I diluted it further with one drop from my original solution and a hundred more drops of water, making a ratio of 1 to 10,000. The next dilution was then 1 to a million. It's common to continue diluting up to 200 times, which means that most homeopathic solutions are basically like a drop in the ocean. There's unlikely to be a single molecule left of my onion. Homeopathy is a really controversial topic. It's also kind of fascinating, and I have so many questions. Not only does it work, but also where did it come from? Where in the world did it find a foothold? And what can this tell us about these different cultures, and about what happens when medicine lets us down? Let's get back to Natalie's story. A few years into her work as a homeopath, a couple of journalists asked to interview her for a book they were writing, which ended up being called The Homeopathy Lie. And I got really angry when I read it because I thought they did not understand anything of the real practice of, of homeopathy in my daily life. I saw so many patients uh, who got better. She was so mad, in fact, she decided to write her own book. She would once and for all silence the critics and lay out the facts about homeopathy and why it really works. But once she got deep into the research, reading studies and literature and debates, I became more and more aware that the arguments of homeopathy are based on, on like sand, and the sand was pouring through my fingers. Today, Natalie is one of the most outspoken critics of homeopathy in Germany. She did write that book, and several others, just from the opposite perspective than she'd planned. But even now, she can still totally relate to people who seek this kind of treatment. Medicine is not treating as well. There's no time, there's no money. You're just a number uh, of other thousand numbers today and you're not feeling treated good enough. And homeopathy offers a lot of time, a lot of empathy, natural remedies that are perfectly shaped to you as a person and there you are worshipped in a way. You need to be worshipped to become better, to feel better, to get healthy. I grew up with homeopathy, so I used to take those little white pills all my childhood when I was sick, but now I don't use them anymore. But my mom, she's still a huge believer. When I was a young man and a young father of two childs, we used homeopathy very often. When we have a cold, sickness, high ears, nose or head, a higher temperature, very often it was a good alternative way to heal. I don't trust that. I always used to throw three spider legs above my right shoulder on midnight. It helps much better. I use Annika globalis when my daughter is injured. And this helps in many cases uh, just to calm down. 
When I moved to Germany eight years ago, I was really surprised to find out how big homeopathy is here. Surveys suggest around half of Germans use it. I have friends and family who do. For the past five years, I presented a YouTube show called Meet the Germans. It was basically my job to dig into the German culture and all the quirks that make this country, well, quirky. And while some stereotypes turned out to be pretty accurate, like Germans being unapologetic straight talkers, there were also many things that really surprised me about my new home. And one of those things is how in touch many Germans are with their spiritual side. Although religion is in decline in Germany, it's still a more religious country than I'd realised before. OK, maybe it's a bit of a leap, but I'm thinking about the faith aspect. There's also a huge interest in things like meditation and mindfulness. And then there's the German love of nature. They're into hiking and gardening and sweating it out in a sauna with a bunch of naked strangers. And I've been wondering if some of these cultural habits might help explain the popularity of something like homeopathy. I asked Natalie what she thinks about this. I think in Germany we are known for our rational thinking and, <laughs> you know, all of that. But we are somehow irrational as well. And homeopathy is the best um, example for it because it's not rational. It's an emotional, perhaps psychological thing. And we just want to believe in it because the features that are delivered with it, like being natural or without harm or without any side effects, just are so popular that we tend to close our eyes towards the uh, rational arguments against it. Germany is the cradle of homeopathy because the inventor, Samuel Hahnemann, was born here. So it belongs somehow to Germany. I need to take you back to the late 18th century in Leipzig, a city in eastern Germany. Samuel Hahnemann, a doctor and chemist, has become increasingly disillusioned with his profession. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the medicine of the day is crude and brutal, using methods like bloodletting and leeching. Then comes the experiment that will change everything for him. He reads about a Peruvian bark containing quinine, which has been used to treat malaria. Hahnemann starts ingesting it himself and realises that he's developing symptoms that are similar to malaria symptoms. And this is how he comes up with the theory of like cures like. He thinks something that causes particular symptoms in a healthy person could cure similar symptoms in a sick person. Remember the onion extract from my makeshift lab? Well, if you cut up an onion, it makes your eyes water. Your nose might get a bit tickly, maybe your eyes itch. Those symptoms will sound very familiar to anyone who has suffered from hay fever. <coughs> so, onions are used as the homeopathic cure for hay fever. Hahnemann continues to experiment on himself and other volunteers, testing ingredients and recording the broad range of symptoms they apparently provoke. He also develops the second part of his theory, the diluting and shaking bit I demonstrated earlier. In his book, The Organon of the Healing Art, he explains that he thinks all illness stems from a disturbance in the body's vital force. The diseases of man are not caused by any substance, any acridity, that is to say, any disease matter, but they are solely spirit-like derangements of the spirit-like power that animates the human body. Some people are really into Hahnemann's new theory. His followers are often referred to as his disciples. His wife compares his book to the Holy Scripture, 
Hahnemann himself seems to see a kind of divine power to homeopathy. In time, our art shall become the God-blessed oak. It will extend its enormous branches steadfast through the storms. Humanity, who has already suffered from so much evil, shall rest below its righteous shadow. But many in the medical community denounce him as a quack and accuse him of taking patients for a ride. A group of physicians who call themselves the Society of Truth-Loving Men want to put Hahnemann's theory to the test. The resulting Nuremberg Salt test ended up being one of the earliest examples of a randomised double-blind trial. Its conclusion? Homeopathic remedies have no effect beyond the power of a participant's imagination and preconceived opinion. You might know this as the placebo effect. It occurs when someone's condition seems to improve even though they were given something with no active ingredients in it, a placebo. It basically has a lot to do with conditioning and our expectations. And it's no joke. It doesn't cure diseases, but when it comes to things like pain management or insomnia, it really can make some patients feel better. Since that test back in 1835, many more studies have been run on homeopathy. Some claiming to show that it works, others claiming to show that it doesn't. So how do we know what to trust? In general, it is a bad idea to look at single clinical trials. If you have a research question, you ought to look at the totality of the evidence. And not only that, you also need to critically analyse and evaluate that evidence. That's Edzard Ernst, Professor Emeritus at Exeter University in the UK. He ran a research unit for alternative medicine, which conducted clinical trials and systematic reviews of published data. And the conclusion they came to? Homeopathy doesn't work. If you critically evaluate the totality of the evidence, it is impossible to arrive at a positive conclusion. But if some people feel better after visiting a homeopath or taking a sugar pill, even if it's the placebo effect, it's still helping them, right? So what's the harm? I put this question to Natalie. We'd slipped into German by this point in the conversation, so I'll sum up what she said. Vielleicht lernt man die Homöopathie wegen eines Schnupfens kennen. You might start off using homeopathy because you or your child has a cold or a stomachache. Maybe it would have gone away on its own, or maybe the placebo effect kicks in. But for whatever reason, you notice an improvement. So you try it out for something more complicated, maybe a lung or bladder infection. It gets really serious if we're talking about things like depression or cancer. Oder bei einer schweren Depression. Aus meiner Erfahrung mit mit ärztlichen Homöopathinnen kann ich halt auch sagen. When I ask if it ever really goes that far, she tells me that in her experience there are doctors who will prescribe homeopathy for everything. They know what to say in public, that they would never use this treatment for things like cancer. But behind closed doors, when no one else is listening, they might do just that and really expect it to work. One of the main arguments against homeopathy is that it might cause someone to avoid or even just delay medical treatment for something serious. And that can have serious consequences. But why else is Hahnemann's homeopathy so controversial in Germany today? Number one, regulation. The law for homeopathy provides that they do not need proof of efficacy. The only thing that is regulated is safety. Uh, homeopathic products need to be safe. 
which is not difficult because they contain absolutely nothing. That's Edzard again. In the 1960s, drug regulation in Germany was ramped up after the thalidomide scandal, when thousands of birth defects were tied back to a drug given to pregnant women to treat morning sickness. The drug had been developed by a pharmaceutical company in West Germany. But when the rules were tightened, homeopaths resisted, and they secured a special status for their treatments. They need to prove that their products are safe, but not that they actually work. Controversy number two. Health insurance. Homeopathy is covered by many public health insurers here. Some people argue this is unethical, especially when other proven treatments are not covered. Number three, Heilpraktiker. There are some 50,000 so-called healing practitioners in Germany. They can offer services in almost all areas of medicine without any medical training. They offer many types of alternative therapies, including homeopathy. But anyway, plenty of medical doctors also offer it alongside conventional treatment, which, honestly, I find pretty confusing as a patient. Number four, point of sale. In Germany, you can't just get a pack of aspirin in the supermarket or the drugstore. You have to go to a pharmacy. And it's the same for homeopathic remedies. Some argue this lends them more legitimacy. Edzard tells me he thinks homeopathy has survived in modern-day Germany, in part thanks to a strong political lobby and a general public suspicion of the pharmaceutical industry. The homeopathic industry is pitched against the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry is said to be evil, out for profit. But you quickly see that they behave exactly the same. They're out for profit. I'm off to a pharmacy right now to see if I can get a homeopathic remedy and basically to see what they tell me about it. I can't record inside, so I will report back. Bye. Okay, so I asked for something homeopathic for headaches. First of all, the guy recommended peppermint oil to rub onto my temples. But then he got this little book out, looked up the word Kopfschmerzen for headaches and spent quite a while looking on his computer before he finally gave me this. It's a little bottle of those globally pills. They kind of look like something a pixie would use for a headache. I did also ask the guy what he thinks of homeopathy, and he sort of dodged the question. He said it's good to avoid taking too much ibuprofen. And when I asked if he thinks homeopathy is basically just placebo, he said something along the lines of well, if it works, it doesn't really matter. So, I paid my 12 euros, and off I went. I definitely would agree that putting this stuff behind the counter in the pharmacy kind of gives it an air of legitimacy. Then again, there is a bit of a running joke among immigrants here that German pharmacies are basically, like, half-stocked with tea anyway, so maybe that fits. I told both my OB and my midwife to please not offer me any homeopathic therapies and that I didn't believe in them and I didn't need them. This is Britt Hermes, a scientist and medical writer from the United States. But she's recounting what it was like talking to her gynaecologist when she was living in Germany while pregnant with her first child. My OB had a very interesting response to me. She said when I declined homeopathy for my morning sickness, 
she said, oh, it's interesting that you would decline it. And I said, yes, well, it doesn't work. And she said, I know, you're right. But women like to be offered something. This reminds me of something Natalie told me about how the marketing for homeopathy seems to target women in Germany. Ads in women's magazines promise soft, natural remedies that seem somehow more palatable than antibiotics and pharmaceutical drugs. And this is actually kind of how this story makes its way to the US. Although homeopathy did crop up on the other side of the Atlantic in the early 19th century, its popularity didn't last. But it made a comeback in the 1970s. The New Age movement was in full swing. Spiritualism and holistic healing were all the rage, and sales of homeopathic products shot up. Part of the appeal was the focus on natural remedies. The whole idea of natural in medicine, to me, is such a massive misunderstanding. These homeopathic products are formulated and refined and, you know, go through a process to produce them in a way that I think definitely doesn't fit someone's strict definition of natural. The natural label has stuck with homeopathy, and these days it's finding an even wider audience online. I think the health influencer, the natural health influencer that is posting on Facebook, or TikTok now, and Instagram plays a huge role in the perpetuation of these alternative therapies and the belief that they're real and safe and that you are a better person, better mom, better woman, better anything if you are looking for a natural alternative rather than pursuing standard medical care homeopathic remedies that are non-toxic they're safe they're non-addictive i'm going to talk to you about autism and how homeopathy works to help minimize symptoms and in some children completely eliminate symptoms this first remedy is arnica and it is incredible for all kinds of trauma physical trauma emotional trauma psychological trauma and sexual trauma Put that under your tongue two to three times daily until your symptoms, disease, or cancer have dissipated or gone away. Trust your instincts as a parent and take control of your child's health with homeopathy. Some four million people in the U.S. use homeopathy, and surveys suggest the vast majority of them are self-prescribing. Homeopathy is super accessible in the U.S. You can find it in the over-the-counter drug section of grocery stores like Whole Foods or Walmart or other standard grocery stores. You can find them in pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens. And I wouldn't be surprised if you can even find them next to medications and gas stations. Homeopathic products can be sold in the U.S. without approval from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. But the agency has announced plans to increase its scrutiny of certain homeopathic products, such as ones that claim to treat or prevent serious conditions, or those marketed to vulnerable people, like children, pregnant women and the elderly. Oh, I do not think health consumers have a clear idea of what they're buying when they pick up a homeopathic product. I was checking out homeopathic products last night, for example, and on the box for this medication and on the website marketing for this homeopathic product, it says that this is a effective medicine. Now, homeopathy is not a medicine. It is a sugar preparation of a hyper-diluted 
substance. But when you're a healthcare consumer and you're picking up a box and you read the word medicine on that box, and of course you're going to think that what you're taking is a medicine. Britt's story is not unlike Natalie's. She had a bad experience with a medical doctor when she was 16 and turned to alternative therapies. She then trained as a naturopath, including homeopathic training. She was fully on board until the day she found out that a colleague was treating cancer patients with an imported, non-FDA-approved naturopathic medicine. But again, just like Natalie, even after stepping over to the other side of the debate, she can still see why these therapies appeal to people. One piece of this puzzle, I think, has to do with the healthcare system in general. The healthcare system in the US is expensive. It's complicated to navigate. And I think many times people feel let down by their healthcare here in the United States. Even if a person is receiving quality healthcare from their physician in the US, it's oftentimes fraught with financial or logistical frustration, meaning finding access to care, getting the insurance to cover care that they're supposed to cover, finding a physician that's in your network. It's time consuming. You have to advocate for yourself. And it's sort of a constant battle. And when you don't feel heard or taken care of by the system that are sort of charged with taking care of you, it's easy to want to step outside of that system. In some countries, the debate does seem to be shifting. In the UK, these treatments are no longer covered under the National Health Service. Some Spanish universities are dropping homeopathy courses. Even in Germany, some states have stopped allowing medical doctors to complete further training in homeopathy. And the current health minister wants to remove it from public health insurance. Of course, Samuel Hahnemann was operating in a very different context. He was reacting to a version of medicine he saw as unjust and ineffective. But medicine has come a long way in the past 200 years or so. Nevertheless, the fact that homeopathy has found such a wide audience in all the countries we've visited, countries with really different cultures and healthcare systems, it reveals a lot about the cracks that still exist in modern medicine and what we really need from it. It's not always accessible or affordable, it rarely treats us like individuals. It doesn't tend to treat our physical and mental health at the same time. And most doctors just don't have the time to really listen. But perhaps it's not too late to learn from this. The medical students going through school now are definitely more attentive to this and definitely pay more attention to how they're talking to the patient and how much time they can spend and trying to get away from this sort of like rushed you know, revolving door healthcare system. And what about the placebo effect? Researchers are becoming more interested in studying it for its own merits and seeing how and when it could fit into healthcare. And there's even research being done into open-label placebos to see if there might still be a positive effect even if you're aware that what you're taking is a placebo. The mind is a powerful thing. What about Natalie, who we heard from right at the beginning? Does she regret taking her friend's advice and turning to homeopathy, even though it did help her back then? Yes, I wish somebody had used the time not only to check my body, but to talk to me and detect the problem. The problem was the car accident, and it was some kind of anxiety. Somebody taking 
some minutes to talk to me would have been able to see that I wouldn't have needed any homeopathic remedies if somebody had told me, oh, it's a post-traumatic thing that you have. Perhaps you talk to a specialist on this field, but it's no need for magical pills. If you enjoyed that meandering audio journey into the world of homeopathy, then the Don't Drink the Milk team have a whole host of other episodes on offer, exploring topics from oracles and AI to pale ale and colonialism. Their latest one is about bagels. Crumbs. Don't Drink the Milk is available wherever you get your podcasts, as, of course, is Inside Europe. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. (laughs) 